Hey everyone, welcome back to the Westbridge Church Podcast. To learn more about Westbridge Church, including our service times, visit us online at westbridgedanville.com. This week's message comes from Pastor John McDougall, and we hope it encourages you to take your next step in your faith journey. Good morning. Thanks for being here with us this morning, and we're so glad that losing an hour of sleep didn't stop you from being here. We can still come and um, worship together. You're still looking good without the sleep. Um, A couple things to highlight real quick before we open up uh, to the book of Acts. There is a milestone class happening next Sunday, and today is the deadline to register. So if you are a family with a kiddo from preschool through second grade, um, this is called Family Discipleship, and it's for that age range. It's to teach the families and the the kids as well about what it looks like um, to have that family discipleship time at home. So some suggestions and things like that. So you could scan the QR code at posters by check-in. Um, or pick up as you get your kids, and you can sign up for that today. The next thing is the 21-day training plan. So we are starting um, some training for three weeks, and you will get something daily. And the goal is that you will be equipped to share your faith as God brings um, people through work or or friends or um, acquaintances, that you will be prepared to share your faith, that you won't have to be hesitant or wondering what to say. So the goal is you sign up um, by next Monday, and you will get a text each day that you can open up with a video. And that video will be Pastor John or Tyson or Kyle with a quick little um, training piece for you to practice so that you do it 21 days in a row, you're ready to go. So there are three ways you can sign up. You can scan this QR code up there. Um, You can go onto the app and sign up that way, or you can also make a mark on your Connect card, and we'll get you signed up. So through um, next Monday, this kicks off. Great. Thank you, Marcy. Good morning, everybody. Excited for uh, this 21-day training plan. Is It's, it's a... Uh, I do this twice a year, once in March when March Madness starts, and then once in September when the football season starts, and it just reinvigorates me um, to be about what God's called us to be about, which is sharing our faith and, and pointing people to the hope we have in Him, and so our hope is everyone in the house uh, jumps on board with this, and hopefully it'll, it'll help you in your, your faith journey as well, but uh, today, excited to dive into Acts chapter 4. We'll pick it up where we left off last week, Acts 4.32, and just to review last week, in case you weren't here, just to give us a refresher, do you remember the operative word? We walked out of here, and the big, the big idea was to live a life of courage, right? And we watched, there was Peter and John had opportunity to back down when they were faced with opposition, and rather than backing down, they held their ground, and they were a bold witness sharing the hope found in Christ, and they just let the chips fall. And so, encouraging moment. Now, what we, we uh, come up to today is several times in the book of Acts, Paul or uh, Luke will give us a summary of how the church is doing. And we're going to read that in just a moment and then carry on. But I, just to give you guys a, a little window into this past week, as I opened up the text, went through it, I was not sure where the Lord was leading us or, or what he wanted us to, to walk out of here with. At the start, so studied, prayed, and it became, started to become clear, and I was, uh, to be honest, a little surprised, uh, thankful, 
but also somewhat nervous about this time of, of walking us through this text because it's a, uh, there's a challenging moment here that brings us into attention in the Christian life that you, we could really talk about for quite a while and I almost feel more comfortable teaching in a class setting where we can, you can ask questions and we can just talk through this and make sure it makes sense. So, um, but I'm excited to see where, where God leads us and just to give a, a window into that, Okay, last week the operative word was courage. Guess what today's operative two words are? Luke sums them up. That, that we would walk out of this place with great fear. You're like, wait a minute. <laughs> John, I thought you said, okay, great. That's, isn't that the opposite of courage? And last week you said, Jesus said not to be afraid. And so how is it that, that we are to... Um, be living with great fear, and we see this in, if you look ahead there to Acts 5, verse 11, here's where we find the church. You might circle in your Bibles the two words, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. And so we ask, okay, what's going on here? What, what is it that, that's happening? And what we'll discover is the fear that's in view here is actually a gift from God propelling us to follow him, propelling us to live out the mission that he's called us to. And so we'll, we'll unpack that. But before we do, I'd encourage you, in this verse, great fear sees the whole church. You might circle the word church and say, okay, church is a pretty normal word, pretty, honestly, we know what that means, right? Bland word. And I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of church. Maybe it's a building, uh, maybe it's a group of people, but it is significant to unpack this word. In the Greek, it's the word, it's a compound word which speaks into our identity as a people. So the word church is ekklesia. Ek means out of, and then klesia or kleo is to, to be called out of something. And so when you put these two together, what, he's, what we're being described as is a called out people. It's the same word Jesus uses when he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades won't stop it. So, okay, what's that mean then? What are we called out of? And the answer is, and it's a beautiful picture of who we are as followers of Christ. When we come to faith in Christ, we are called out of a kingdom, the dominion of darkness, the, the, of the devil, of evil, of sin, all those things, and called into God's kingdom, the kingdom of, of heaven on earth. As a church family, we often say, we're an outpost of heaven here on earth, and, and that's, we're an outpost of called out people, people who have been called out of a life um, in bondage to sin, w without the power to overcome those things that, that hold us down, the addictions, into a life of freedom through faith in Christ, called out of a life of purposelessness and no hope, into a life that's just overflowing with hope and a purpose worth living for, and called out of being alienated from God and called into, not only are we not his enemies, but we're his family, like we get to sit down at the dinner table with God and, and relate to him as a, a father who loves us with a love that you cannot measure. To call him Abba and to know him and to walk with him and to enjoy him. And having him, we have it all. We, we are a called out people. So when you see the word church throughout Acts, and he'll use it 22 more times, instead of, or, or I, I find myself, okay, John, resist the urge to see a building. <laughs> That's not the church. The church is these called out people and it's a group of it's an outpost of of heaven here on earth 
So in our text today, what Luke does, he starts with, okay, this is what a group of called out people looks like when they're all in for Christ. When Jesus is king of every heart, this is a picture of the church doing well. It's thriving. It's being who God created it to be. In verse 32, check this out. Three marks we'll see of a church that's, um, that's thriving. The first we see in verse 32 where he says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. The first mark of a church that's healthy and strong is, we could say his church is united. Here we see that sweet unity that comes when Christ is king of our heart. Jesus prayed this would mark us as his, as his body. In John 17, he prayed, Father, make them one. And so when we come to faith in Christ, trust him, we receive his love, we're invited into this, the Trinity love um, circle, but we also receive his love to give to those around us. And so that's what, what hap- sweet unity happens as we receive his love, share his love. This is the sweet unity that we experience as we keep our eyes fixed on him versus all those things that tempt us to, to uh, focus on the division in one another. Have you noticed it's so easy to focus on what, what makes another person different than you? You know, maybe it's a political view or a whatever view, but, but why is it we, we just go after these differences when in Christ we are like have so much in common, and that's, as we focus on him and keep our eyes on him, it brings this sweet unity, and this is the sweet unity that we pursue, and we're called to pursue in Ephesians 4, why? Because we are one, we are the body of Christ, each of us is a member, like a finger, a toe, a knee, and the, the only way we win, we succeed in accomplishing his mission, is if each part of the body is united together, and syncing up, and working together. And then we, we bring the victory, as we hope Purdue will do over Iowa. Sorry, Brent. But, uh, <laughs> but it's beautiful to watch a basketball team just synced up in, in sweet unity, isn't it? Rather than one player playing for themselves. Or, or, uh, and, but so it is in the body of Christ. And that's what God called, um, uh, Jesus died to give us and, and that he's creating. Second mark of a church that's healthy and strong is there. Second part of verse 32, he says, and uh, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. See, man, radical generosity. Like, what, what is it that led this church to say, my stuff is your stuff, and if somebody has a need, here, I'm, I'm going to help out. The answer is, when we've received the grace of God and awakened to what God has done for us in Christ, giving us all things in Christ, not only has He promised to meet every need, but will meet every need, it frees us up with our stuff, doesn't it? And we realize we are stewards of his grace. And we get more excited about giving than receiving even. And it's just like, where's the need? And I'll, I'll help. And we see that happening in this church family. We call this grace giving in, our, in this dispensation or in the church age. And in the Old Testament, there was a law that God gave the people, you know, you had to give it, a tithe was the base and then it added up. We don't have that in the New Testament. Why? Why didn't God give us a law? You have to give this much. It's because when you've received Christ, which is everything, you don't need a law. (laughs) When you understand his grace that he promises that we've received and continues to pour out, we are generous. And we talk about five marks of grace giving. It's radically generous. It's proportional. In this uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 talks about we, we give according to what we have. Some people can give more than others. It's not about the amount. It's about what God's given you at your season of life. When you're five years old, 
probably don't have a lot to give. You give something, but when you're 55, you probably have a lot to give, and, and so you give more. It's, uh, it's cheerful. God loves a cheerful giver. It's, we don't give grudgingly, but Lord, I love doing this, and it's from a heart that, that delights to give. And then it's regular. It's, um, we see in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, set apart a portion. At the, they, they set aside a portion to give at the start of each week just to keep the ministry of the, of the churches going. And then it's, uh, it's sacrificial. And sometimes I can get in a, a giving rut and stop and think, is this costing me anything, you know? Am I pushing my generosity limits or have I dropped into kind of a comfortable space so the second mark of a church that's healthy and strong it's not only is it unified it's radically generous and then the third mark we see in verse 33 is it says with great power the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the picture of just um, sharing we saw the one who claimed to be God who died for our sin, rose from the dead, and they're sharing this message, and God's using it. And this is the answer to the, the pr- uh, promise that Jesus gave them in Acts 1-8, that you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And we see this playing out. So he, he carries on, continues to describe the, uh, what this church is looking like. Second part of verse 33, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there was no needy persons among them. Pretty neat picture of, uh, of them just sharing with each other. From that time, from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had a need. Okay, so Luke gets specific. Here's an, an actual guy who does this. His name is Joseph. He's a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles also called, called Barnabas. So they gave him the nickname Barnabas, which Luke lets us know it means son of encouragement. Isn't that a great uh, nickname to give this guy? And he's one of the guys we'll track with as we go through Acts. Really neat story. But he sells a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the, the apostles' feet to help out with needs. Okay, here, here we are. Luke gives us this summary of the church is strong, it's healthy, it's going, it's inspiring to us to be that But as we pan out from this scene to God's whole redemptive story, from Genesis to Revelation, what do we see? What's happening in this moment? It's really cool when when you see it. This is a return to Eden. This is paradise being restored. This is God recreating what was broken by sin in Genesis 3 and bringing us back to Genesis 1 and 2. When Adam and Eve chose sin, what happened to relationships with God, with each other? Fractured, blown apart. There was disunity, disintegration. Here, through the gospel and through the power and the love of Christ, relationships are coming back together, the relationship with God, with each other, and they are one. That's church. Two, what happened at the fall? They they went outside, work was hard, famines hit creation's fallen apart under the curse, and the human heart becomes greedy. Power uses power to corrupt and to take people's money versus spread the wealth. And what happens? It's a mess. There's need, but not in the church. He said there's no need here. Why? Because the love of Christ is transforming people where they're no longer holding on to stuff. They are giving it away, sharing with each other. Not because they have to. It's not, this isn't a call to communism or socialism. This isn't rule 
This is the love of God at work in a group of people. It's the outpost of heaven. And three, what do we see? When God made Adam and Eve, what was their primary purpose? To go bearing his image, made in the image of God, to be fruitful and multiply across the earth to let worship, as worshipers and basically fill the earth with worship. That, that was, that's our goal as humans. And what's happening here as they share the power of the gospel with people, People are no longer worshiping themselves. They're receiving the gift of salvation through faith, and they're beginning to worship the one true God. And it's spreading, adding to their number. The church, up to 10,000 people, worshipers going out across the world. Isn't that awesome? So in Genesis 1 and 2, what was the anthem that you keep hearing if you read this? It is good. 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 And as we watch Eden restored, what do you want to say? You just want to say, it is good. But Genesis 1-2 goes into Genesis 3 and smacks us in the face when Luke writes Acts chapter 5, it hits us with the same shock. Genesis 3, here's a married couple who have been given everything, every tree in the garden. Did Adam and Eve have lack? No, they needed nothing. Here in Acts chapter 5, we meet another married couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who have more than enough. God has blessed them, not only with salvation, but with stuff. They have, they would be considered wealthy in this culture. It says, and now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. So, coming off of Barnabas, hey, let's go do that too. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back a part of that money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? Interesting there in the Garden of Eden, Satan was allowed to tempt, and here we see within the church, within the outpost of heaven, he's still allowed to tempt, and he attempted Ananias. He says, how has he so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold? Wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think that, of doing such a thing? You have not lied to just human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped his body, and carried it carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, what is, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for this land? Yes, she said, this is, that is the price. Peter said to her, how, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. The young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out, buried her beside her husband and great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. As we reflect on this moment, it, it hits you like a shock, doesn't it? And it leaves, left me asking all kinds of questions like what, what just happened? What is the sin that they committed that warranted such severe 
and immediate judgment from God. And, and is this kind of judgment something that God still will uh, apply to us in our own lives today? And why does God have Luke record this moment at this point in the, the narrative of his story? What is it that, that he wants us to take away from this? And so I wrestled with this this week and just, Lord, what, what do you want us as your church to hear and, and come away from this with? And I did come to the conclusion that I, I think God wants us to feel what this first church felt, which is seized by great fear. Why? I think this text is a gift to us in that it shocks us awake to our real enemy. It's interesting where this text, Luke or Acts 5, comes after Acts 4, where what we really, what most of us would say, I, what I would fear most is these authorities that are threatening me with my life, with my money, with my well-being, with, with whatever. That's the people to fear, right? The people, that, and think about our own lives, you know, as we who do we fear? People, the, the government, the, the things out there, groups, whatever it may be. But here, I think God is whispering to us, guys, as the church there and as individual followers of Christ, our biggest threat is not out there. It's not the opposition. The biggest threat is in here. And it's the pride that would lead us into that insanity of thinking we can do life apart from God to ignore his word to us, to ignore his way, to go our way versus go his way and follow the lie of the enemy into sin, which will lead to consequences. And so this text is a warning siren to us as followers of Christ, which should move us to great fear as we battle our temptations. So here's the takeaway. With great fear, put death to, uh, or pride to death and uh, pursue a pure heart. So as you think about great fear, I, I, we think about fear in the negative if we fear the wrong things, but if fear, fear is actually a gift from God if the danger is real, isn't it? Think about the power of fear to motivate and to move and, and to get us in motion. I couldn't help but think of a, uh, a snake, and uh, if I, is that, does anyone else just jump when you see a snake and then accelerate in the opposite direction? I, and I'm a chicken, but uh, and if you love snakes, forgive me. But uh, if I'm mowing along in the backyard and I see a snake slithering along, I am jumping and I am running where to the garage, where to the axe, and I'm coming back and I'm going to put that snake to death. Has it done anything wrong? No, but it's threatening the shalom and the peace of our backyard. And I, as the protector, don't want my wife and daughter worried about a snake being back there. But I think about... This, uh, the gift that God gives us is reminding us there is something to fear in the Christian life, really only one thing to fear, and that's the insanity that sin tempts us into of thinking life is better apart from God. I'm going to end around him. It's the temptation to ignore the truth that runs through all time, that's as sure as gravity, that God summarizes in Galatians chapter 6 where he says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to pl please the flesh, meaning our sinful desires, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, following God from the Spirit, will reap eternal life. So let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we, if we do not give up. 
The enemy of our soul is ever seeking to lure us asleep to the destructive power of sin in our lives. We think, hey, I, I did this little thing and nothing happened, so I can just do it again, do it again. When in reality, in the spiritual realm, cords are being wrapped around our, our cords of bondage with each sin. Sin always destroys. Sin always disintegrates our relationship with God. Sin is social, disintegrating our relationships with one another and um, eventually blows our witness for Christ. But why is the judgment so severe in this case? And this is where it's important to know um, God does not normally treat us this way for our sin. He would be justified if he, if he did um, in that every sin deserves death. But our God is gracious, he is loving, and he does not delight in judgment, but delights in salvation. So you say, well, what's going on in this moment? This is a, what is called a judgment miracle. It's a unique occurrence. We know throughout the rest of Acts that, and into the New Testament, the church, there are many blatant sins and obvious sins that God does not judge with death. With death. Some he may, but, uh, and he could even still today, but the normal path is not death, but rather he convicts us through his Holy Spirit and leads us to repentance. Hebrews 12 tells us that God, as a good father, disciplines his children. And that discipline is sometimes painful, but it's pain that has purpose. And so God, how he normally treats us is to uh, convict us inwardly through guilt, shame, and then um, if he needs to, he will bring painful things into our lives. But it's out of love to turn us to him that we would follow and, and not follow the path that would lead to ultimate destruction. So, but still, what's going on in this moment? What you'll see as you look back throughout history, redemptive history, is at the start of each era, each dispensation, a new uh, way that God is dealing with his called out people, he will, there will be a judgment miracle that will happen, or, or a judgment and uh, where he just reminds his people of our greatest threat, which is our sin, our pride. For Adam and Eve, do you remember what the judgment was? As they left the Garden of Eden, the judgment was the sound of an animal screeching the screams of death. When they left the garden, they had clothed themselves with leaves, but that would not be enough to, for the crazy world they were going into. So God killed an animal. An animal died for them. And he took that animal's skins and he clothed Adam and Eve. A picture of grace, his covering, a foreshadowing that they would be clothed by Christ and, and uh, the blood that would be shed for, through his blood that would be shed on their behalf. But every time they got dressed, they were reminded, if I sin through pride, something dies. It's deserving death. Then you go into, remember when the people of Israel were about to enter the promised land and God told Joshua and all of them, okay, this first battle, don't touch the money of the people you defeat. This is for me. And he was testing their hearts, protecting them from their greatest enemy, which was pride and it leads to greed. And a guy named Achan took some of that money, buried it in his tent, and God uh, he could not get away with it. God told Joshua about it, and he end up, ends up having to die for that. And so at the beginning of the church here, it's a similar uh, moment that God is giving his church, giving us. You say, well, what just happened? What, what was their sin? Well, what, was it the money? Was it the fact that they only gave half of the, land, the money for the land? And the answer is no. It, they weren't required to give anything. They, God never told them to sell the field or give half or whatever. 
It wasn't the money. It was what Peter says in verse 4. You have, you have not just lied to humans, but to God. And what was their lie? It was that they were giving their full amount when they were only giving partial, the partial amount. So they were coming to Peter after Barnabas gave the whole field, and they're like, here's, here's that. We sold our field, and here's all the money. So the question is, what was driving that lie? As you think about the anatomy of temptation, what was it that, what was in it for them to lie about this? What, what, what was driving the lie? It was, it was pride, wasn't it? it was, they wanted glory for themselves. They wanted to look good. And so, thinking, okay. But, but there's, at the back of that, there's greed. They wanted the money. And, and why did they want the money? And we know money is, is a, a means for glory. Hang on to the money, and then you can buy the stuff that some people will look, at, look up to you for. You know, you can drive this or drive that or whatever. So they, they can look good to God's people, but they can also look good to, to uh, the world that's watching them. They were using their good deed, their act of worship, their generosity to gain human praise, to look good to others. It was pride. And what should fill us with great fear today is how easily pride slips into our motives as we serve God, you know, and, and even do the good that he's called us to do. So that when we come to church, it's not from a pure heart of just wanting to come and worship him, but there can slip into that, hey, I want to come and so I can keep up my name when others see me here. When we go to pray, we're not just talking with him out of love and devotion and eyes fixed on him, but we're Sometimes we can pray in a way that we're, okay, how can I make this impressive to the people around me? And uh, it's almost as if he becomes a, a secondary person in the room. When we serve in our ministry, we're doing so to be impressive rather than to uh, just humbly serve and meet needs and be helpful to the people around us. When we give, sometimes we, we slip into, you know, uh, the primary way we give to our church family is anonymously, and that's by purpose. Jesus said, don't, don't want to do this to be seen and all those things, and so no one knows what we give when we give to our church family, but, you know, there are needs out there, and, and sometimes it feels good, say, a missionary, that I can give to a missionary, and I know their name, and I, you know, they, and, but there's that little pride slips in, and they know what I gave. kind of feels good to give to something that knows um, what I've done. The, the reality is, as we look at Ananias and Sapphira, we're all guilty of the same sin, aren't we? And we all deserve the judgment that they got. Which leads us to the question, why is this sin, why is pride such a big deal? And the reality is, our pride blows apart the unity that God, Jesus died to give us blows apart. Where there is pride, there is a breach in the relationship with God, and it leads to conflict with one another. Back to the, the three marks of a church that are just thriving, it, it blows apart that sweet unity. It disrupts the flow of God's grace through radical generosity. It's pride at the heart of Ananias and Sapphira that leave them hoarding their wealth, hanging on to half of it rather than giving the whole thing, and it, it disrupts the flow of God's grace through them, and it disrupts the flow of God's grace to them. Now he no longer can trust them with wealth, but rather he has to be a, a father who will lovingly discipline them. 
and it extinguishes our witness. As you talk to people who are not in church or have been hurt by church, what's, what's one of the number one things they will cite? What was it about church that turned them off? Hypocrite. They, they said they were doing this, but the, there was pride at play, and it stinks. It, it's repulsive to a world that is apart from Christ, and our, it dims our witness you may be thinking, but I thought Jesus died for our sin, and when he died, he, he covered it. I'm forever forgiven. I'm under grace, so I won't be punished or disciplined for my sin. And, and this is the part of this I hope you hear, and, it, and if you have questions, would, would love to talk with you about. That is true. When you come to faith in Jesus, every sin that you have ever committed, will commit, has been paid for him on the cross. He took the punishment. He took the judgment. He took the death that we deserve and we are forever forgiven for our sin. But this is equally true. As Christians living in this fallen world and living with the capacity to sin, if we choose sin, we will suffer the consequences that that sin will enact on us in this life. There are rewards to be lost. Um, Sin must be judged and will be judged. It always makes us pay. The consequences of our sin is a gift of mercy from God. The shame, the guilt, the pain that comes with with the consequences are gifts to turn us to repent and to seek Him and to follow Him and to pursue a pure heart. And so the, the takeaway is, with great fear, put pride to death. When you feel the pride come up and you get the Lord convicts us of, hey, you know, that wasn't a pure motive. Rather than thinking, ah, no one sees it, whatever, to see it as a snake and go after it, to pursue a pure heart, to ask for forgiveness, pray that he would cleanse us, and then um, seek to live with a pure heart before him. A great question to ask is, why am I doing this really? Like, is this for my glory or is this for God's glory? Am I more concerned about my name or his name? Is this about me or about him? And two texts that are especially helpful that uh, prayers to pray are, are Psalm 51, verse 10, which I encourage you to take. And, and these are ones that you can just live on throughout this week. Psalm 51, 10 says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So praying for that purity of heart. And then the next one is Psalm 115, verse 1, that says, Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and your faithfulness. Just living in that sweet spot, purity of heart, that we want God's name to be glorified because of his love and faithfulness to us. Okay, so bringing it all together, what's the, the big idea? Or, and if we could ask, what would Ananias and Sapphira say to us if they could be with us here today? I think one thing they would say is, don't waste our legacy. Learn from our example. Live with great fear over this greatest of, of threats, which is pride, and let that fear move you to put it to death and pursue a pure heart. And I love the picture of, of as we do this, and, and by the power of God, we do this, we experience the sweet unity that he created us to experience, and we experience radical generosity, or, or we spend our lives for those around us, and reward, look forward to the reward that comes, Jesus promised to those who were radically generous. And we are a witness to Jesus. So I was studying this. I just kept coming back to who, lives, who lived like this? 
with a um, zero pride and a pure heart. It was Jesus. You know, he came, he deserved all the glory, all the honor, and he came into a, as a baby in a manger with nothing about him that would attract us to him, nothing impressive. He took a job that he didn't make hardly any money. There, from a human standpoint, humble all the way, and he died a criminal's death on a cross for you and me, giving everything. And then he says, hey, this is the path. Come follow me. Wes said it's an easy yoke and an, or a light, an easy oak, and it is, isn't it? This is the, well, we're not worried about our name. We're not trying to build our kingdom here or hang on to possessions so people think this, that, or other. We have one focus, and it is him, and it's the life that he's called us to. And what a gift God has given us today in this text, and so I, wherever he's at work in your heart, I just encourage you to, to follow his lead. Maybe you're on the verge of doing what you know is wrong. God's clearly said it in his word, and I would just beg you not to believe the lie, but to confess that and, and to uh, follow Christ. Maybe you've been the source of some conflict or division in relationships around you, and the Lord's been whispering, it's been your pride, it's been about you, and just to confess that and, and to pursue a pure heart, make that right. Maybe you've been hanging on to money, Serving money, loving money, because it's the supply of glory that, or security that you're looking for. Just invite you to, to lay that down before Him, repent, and, and to trust Him and follow Him. I'll pray us through Psalm 51 here, and just invite you to pray along in your own heart, asking uh, God for His confession, but also receiving His His uh, cleansing. Father, we uh, thank you that we can come into your presence now, the throne of grace, and receive help and receive forgiveness and just cleansing of heart. And we pray along with David, Lord, that you would have mercy on us according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, that you would blot out our transgressions, that you would wash away all of our iniquity, cleanse us of our sin. And God, I pray that you would create in each one of our hearts a pure heart, that's not living for self, but that's living for you and desires your glory alone. Create within us a steadfast spirit to sustain us and help us to keep our eyes on you, to follow you with all of our heart. We thank you and for your love for us, for your grace, your mercy, your word, that even this moment that we've been able to relive from Acts is shaping us and moving us and drawing us closer to you. Thank you for that. And we pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's talk and believe it would be helpful for others, please be sure to subscribe or share. To experience other messages or find helpful resources, visit us online at westbridgedanville.com.